Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports. College Football Fix is back. National Championship Game edition of the show. Alabama versus Georgia on Monday night in Indianapolis. In many ways, we are exactly where we thought we would be kind of all season, I guess. I mean, if you would have said back on August 31st that at the end of this deal, Alabama versus Georgia was going to be the national championship game, I would have just nodded my head and said, sounds about right. Yeah, but would you have said that on November 1st? No. No, no, no. On November 1st, I would have said that Alabama was going to lose to Georgia in the SEC championship game and that that would knock Alabama out and that Georgia would be playing, I don't know, Ohio State. That's probably what I would have said on November 1st. Is Will Anderson right in that Alabama has been disrespected? Has Alabama been disrespected? The the disrespect of the greatest – dynasty in the history of college football. Um, I No, I don't think they've been disrespected. You know why? Because for most of the season, Alabama didn't play like a team that was capable of winning a national championship. And you know what? They played that way probably one time this year. And it just happened to be against Georgia in the SEC championship game. And now they get them again. Here's to me what's interesting about this. Most of the time, I am very much against rematches. I don't like them. I don't think they're interesting. Maybe my perception is colored by what happened in 2011 when Alabama-LSU played the classic memorable 9-6 game, got matched up again in the national championship, and it was a total snooze fest. But I actually think that the this game being a rematch makes it maybe 10 times more interesting than it otherwise would have been because that first game was so unexpected. Yeah. It adds a really interesting layer to this. And I, and I understand that there are a lot of people nationally who don't want to see an sec only championship game. I mean, I, I get that. And that maybe there's some sort of fatigue or just bitterness or jealousy. But I think that having them play twice in 40 days is a really interesting subplot to a championship game, Um, especially the fact that Georgia's been unstoppable defensively every game except for that. Like you said, Alabama has been gettable almost every single game but that. So to have them come back 40-something days later and do it again, I think is really, really interesting. And I hope we get a better game. Um, I'm not sold on the fact it's going to be a better game. And that's not to say Georgia doesn't win this one by seven teams. I think that's a possibility. But um, I would like to see this one be a little bit more competitive, and I guess that just comes down to the idea of what has either team learned from that game and what has either team done in the week since to get better, especially for Georgia. Yeah, I think when you look at these two teams, I'm not sure that there's like this huge talent differential. I think that both teams are 
fairly even. I'm, I maybe even Georgia, you could say, has more talent. They certainly have more experienced talent at, at key positions. But Alabama's got the better quarterback, at least in theory. And what you saw in the first game was that game was all about Bryce Young. And it was all about Bryce Young, not just because he played well, he, which he obviously did, but because Georgia kind of allowed it to be about Bryce Young. You know, you've seen Alabama at so many points this year not be able to protect him very well. Certainly you saw it the week before the SEC championship game against Auburn. They didn't protect at all. And so you can imagine if you're the Georgia coaching staff, Kirby Smart, Dan Lanning, you're looking at that game, you're looking at the way Alabama played all season, and you're thinking with our defensive front – we will be able to get pressure and we will be able to get him on the ground, force him into some bad throws, do basically what everybody else has done. And it just turned out that they couldn't do that on that day. And so I don't think that Alabama winning that game the way they did was necessarily about the talent, quote unquote. It was about some of the choices that Georgia made in how they were going to play that game and the fact that Alabama was able to take advantage of it. And so one of the, I think, obvious things that's going to happen on Monday is, is Georgia will make different choices. They will force that game to be played a different way. They will certainly attempt to not make this all about Bryce Young. Whether they're successful or not, I don't know, but they're certainly going to try. And I think that opens up the possibility for just a wild range of outcomes. Yeah, I mean, here's the interesting thing I think of that. You're right, there's no doubt that Georgia's going to have a different defensive game plan. Um, My question is whether that defensive game plan will allow them to do things differently on offense because we saw in December, if it's a Bryce Young-Stetson-Bennett game, Alabama's going to win. I mean, no disrespect to Stetson-Bennett. He answered the bell again against Michigan. You know what I mean? Yep. And, And he deserves our respect. But if it's that kind of matchup, Alabama wins. And they beat almost every team in the country, if not every team in the country, if it's a matchup of QBs. But if Georgia can bring pressure on Alabama, change what Alabama does offensively, or at least impact that, does that allow them on the offensive side to get more into their groove, into their comfort zone, and not have Seth and Bennett throw it 37 to 40 times? I think that's obviously the winning formula. Um, but you bring pressure, you 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 run the, the risk, and you gamble on, on big plays downfield. So... I don't know what Georgia does on defense. I don't really know at this point if I feel comfortable or, or confident in any defense, even Georgia's really stopping Alabama. But I do think, like you said, they can do things differently, decide to go into this game and do things um, uh, almost not opposite, but definitely sprinkle in some of their pressure packages um, to make Bryce Young and Alabama uncomfortable. Make them uncomfortable, you got a real shot. Actually, you make Bryce Young uncomfortable, I think Georgia obviously wins this game because, like you said, if there is any talent gap, it's minuscule, and it probably favors the Bulldogs out when the guys, the 22 guys on the field, probably favors Georgia. Yeah, a lot of times in a national championship game or in a college football playoff game, what we've seen is the favorite go in, basically say, we're going to do what we do, and that's going to be good enough if we execute it well. And certainly that's how it looked to me in the semifinals. You know, Alabama – said, okay, we, we can run the ball. We've, we can absolutely just run it down Cincinnati's throat, and, and that's how we're going to win this game. And they did. 
Georgia, it was basically a physical mismatch. See, I don't think in this game either team is going to be able to just say, we're going to do what we do and that's good enough. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that there's going to have to be some type of X factor here. And even though I'm sort of leaning to Georgia, one of the things to me that, that is a huge X factor in favor of Alabama is Nick Saban's history of being willing in national championship games to um, take some big risks. Mm-hmm. I mean, think back to the onsides kick the first time against Clemson. Think back to pulling Jalen Hurts for Tua Tungavailoa at halftime the first time they played Georgia. Saban will, and maybe it's because he's won eight national championships or seven national championships, and that gives you a certain freedom to, you know, to to take some chances to roll the dice. But he is very comfortable, just kind of, you know. If if things are going the wrong direction, if things need to be shaken up, he will take a chance. Kirby has taken chances in some of these big games, but more haphazardly and yeah. sort of, fake you know what I mean? Yeah, the fake punting and, you know, thing, things that you sort of just go, eh, really? So I think that there's an X factor in the coaching that is pretty clearly in favor of Saban. I just don't know if that's going to be enough. Yeah, we don't talk about it enough um, of what what Saban does game management, game control-wise in these high-pressure spotlight moments. Um, Just incredible. If you're Alabama, I don't – I think this has the potential from both sides to be a little bit of a dodgy, uh, unimpressive first quarter because Alabama can't go into this game with the same game plan either. They have to be ready to improvise, you know, so they they might go in saying, Hey, we're going to put the ball in Bryce's hands, let him go to work. And that's fine. But they might find after 15 minutes that, Hey, we got to We got to switch things up. So in a game of adjustments, a game of seat of your pants decisions, a game where one decision on a fourth down, um, one decision on what you do on third and two can make the difference. Clearly, that favors Saban. It's not a slight against Kirby Smart, but Nick Saban is the king, um, and that favors Alabama. So it's interesting to think about how these two teams kind of shadow box for 15 minutes and then what the next three quarters looks like and certainly what the second half looks like if we've got a close game. I love the Alabama matchup in that in that regard against Georgia. Yeah. Now, I think one thing to keep in mind, and it, this has sort of gotten lost in the aftermath of the SEC championship game, is that, you know, it was really just kind of one quarter that sunk Georgia. You know, it was the second quarter. They, if you think back to that game, Georgia was up 10 nothing. They, they scored that touchdown on the literally the first snap of the second quarter. So it was 10 nothing Georgia, and Alabama gets the ball, and that's when there was a secondary coverage bust. Remember Jamison Williams, 67-yard touchdown, wide, wide, wide open. I mean, as as wide open as Jamison Williams probably has been all year long. And then from that point, it was like about, you know, 30 minutes of just an avalanche Mm -hmm. from Alabama. 
And by the time Georgia like even steadied things at all, they were down 31 17. Um, and then, you know, and then from there, like it never seemed like Georgia was going to get back in the game at all, but it was definitely more evenly played, you know, in, in the back half of that game. Um, so it was 41 24 and certainly a very, a very comfortable looking Alabama win. But I do wonder if people are maybe just sort of overlooking the idea that it wasn't like a start-to-finish ass-kicking. It was one really bad quarter for Georgia and one really good quarter for Alabama. Yeah, and I think the teams are more evenly matched than that final score suggests. But you look at these two teams, one of them has the opportunity and the ability to do that. You know, I don't trust in Georgia's ability outside of flipping the field, getting a turnover, a pick six, a long kick return of dropping 24 points in a 15-minute span. I mean, I just don't see it. So Alabama can still do that to Georgia. Um, question is, if they get up 17 points again or 14 points again, does Georgia have what it takes to make up that deficit? I don't even know at this point, 15 games into the year, if we know the answer to that question because we really haven't seen it except for that one time. So if Alabama has another quarter like that, which they certainly can, um, that could be the game. It could be the game as early as the first quarter or as early as the mid-second if they're up 24-10 or 27-10. So I just don't think Georgia's going to let that happen again, but certainly Alabama has the ability to do that. I don't know what to make of Cincinnati, of that game. I don't think I came out of that game thinking, okay, Alabama has clearly turned a corner. Um, I don't think it was like the most coherent, consistent game they played all year, but still I think they're playing with enormous confidence. Um, And they realize, because it hasn't been that long, that they can do this to Georgia like they did the last time. So – I'm wary if I'm Georgia of that run that you said. I'm wary of the fact that Alabama can put a 65-yarder over the top and break a game open because they've done it before, you know. So it's yeah. on Georgia to kind of button it up down the in the back end. And then the other part of this is just the psychological aspect. And I always find it interesting in football when it comes to rematches. You know, sometimes the team that loses the first meeting has kind of a mental edge a little bit in, in the rematch. You saw this with Georgia. In fact, uh, the year that they got to, to um, the championship game, they had gotten their ass kicked by Auburn. If you remember at Auburn, I mean, it, that game was just a wipeout. Mm-hmm. And then they come back a few weeks later and they play Auburn in the sec championship game. And they totally flipped the script. They flipped it physically I mean, it was that I, I don't remember the final score, but I mean, I was there at that game. It was just not competitive. So we've seen that actually happen before with Georgia. Now, the difference is, of course, you know, that was on the road at Auburn, like different circumstance than, than what we, we saw here. So I, I think in some cases, there's a mental edge for the team that, that loses the first time. On the other hand, I do think, may, and I, I don't know if this affects the players. I really don't. But there is this sort of mental scarring that happens to teams that face Alabama a lot. And George has faced Alabama like several times. Mm-hmm. Kirby Kirby's never beaten him. What is he now? Oh for four? <laughs> I believe that's right. He's over yeah. four. Trying to do the math. I know they've lost um, straight. And you know, it just it just feels so hard to, to beat that team. 
Uh, and really the only program that has had any success doing it with, with regularity was, uh, was Auburn with, with Gus Malzahn, right. you know, and, and they did it a few times. I mean, Clemson did it twice, but, but they also lost a couple times. I mean, that was a pretty, you know, it was kind of a blow for blow. Um, but it's just hard. And like, you know, you can never really get inside Kirby's own head and he doesn't necessarily like allow a lot, but you just know it's got to eat at him. And he, he has to sort of feel the squeeze a little bit, knowing what he's up against. Yeah. I mean, if you're human, um, I'd imagine that you're like looking at this matchup thinking, holy cow. Um, some of the worst losses in program history for Georgia. Yeah. Have occurred against Alabama. The blackout game. Blackout. The 2012 SEC championship. Yep. Uh, 2017 National Championship, 2018 SEC Championship, uh, this past SEC Championship. Um, I don't know how you don't carry that weight along with you into these games. I just don't know. How do you not think, oh, boy, here we go again? It's a bit of a Globetrotters, Washington Generals thing going on here. No matter how we play, what we do, we're going to lose because we're Georgia and they're Alabama. Does that factor into how the players prepare? I don't know if it impacts the players. Um but if you're a fan of that team, if you're Georgia, I mean, you expect the worst because the worst tends to happen in this series. So this is a game that not just signals the end potentially of a 41-year drought for a program that should never go 41 years between national championships. It's a monkey-off-your-back game for a program and for a coach and for everybody. And, you know, not to get too far ahead of things, but if Georgia wins this game, it could signal the changing of a guard in the SEC. So there's a lot of subplots of this game related to the series history of this rivalry. Um, and the series history of this rivalry is ugly, ugly, ugly for Georgia. It is. It is. And, you know, they haven't won a national championship since 1980. That's a long, long time for a program like Georgia, which has so many advantages, is located perfectly. And as I've said many times before, like, draw a a big circle around Athens, Georgia, and look at how many programs within, you know, a three-hour drive have won a national championship or four-hour drive. Clemson, Auburn, Tennessee, Florida State, <laughs> even 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 Georgia Tech has won one Ooh. since Ow. since Georgia's last national title. That right? Hurt, hurt my heart. Or hear you say that. I mean, I'm not even supporting Georgia. That hurts. Yeah, I mean, like there's like 25 Congress men and women who are younger than Georgia's national championship drought. You know what I mean? Um, I don't even think football was nationally televised. We didn't even have the. We didn't even have that Supreme Court ruling yet when Georgia won the national championship. There was like one game a week. Keith Jackson and Bud Wilkinson. A lot has changed. I think we had color television. In 1980, probably right. I mean, seriously. Yes, yes. TV. I think color Everyone color 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 it was it, it was fuzzy. It didn't right. look good, but there we, was but no VHS. We had it, yeah. So I don't even know if tapes yeah. exist of that game uh, that they won. Um, there's no excuse to go 41 years without a national championship to Georgia. There's just not. Georgia Tech has 0.5 national championships. Just to repeat that, and uh, and Georgia does not. <laughs> no, it's it's quite a streak. And obviously, they've had a couple teams that were good enough to do it. I mean, if two, look, in 2012, if 
Georgia gets in the end zone at the end of the SEC championship game. And of course, there were a million other plays that happened in that game. One of the best college football games I've ever seen in person, maybe the best. Then they're winning the national championship. They're beating Notre Dame easily that year. That was a hellacious Georgia team. You know, one play away in 2017, it just didn't happen. You know, so it's not like, oh, Georgia can't do it or whatever. Obviously they can, but until you, until you actually get it done, then it seems hard and you only get one shot a year to do it. So that's where they are. There's a lot of sort of mental baggage there, probably mostly in the fan base, although I'm sure some in the coaching staff and I mean, Kirby's not the only uh, Georgia guy on that coaching staff. You got Will Muschamp on that coaching staff. Will Muschamp's got an opportunity to be a national champion. So um, Georgia can, they just don't. But I will say, Dan, um, to your point about um, that region dominating college football, this is not just three straight national championships for the SEC. It'll be 12 of 16, and it'll be 15 of 16 for programs that we would generally say are located within the Southeast. 15 out of 16. 2014 Ohio State is the lone exception. 15 out of 16. Why even play? Why even try? Why even have a shot if you're not in that footprint? It's incredible. 15 out of 16. Just remarkable. Well, this brings us to, I think, another discussion. When you sort of zoom out on college football and where it is now, you know, the fact we've got another all-SEC national title game, of course, we had it in 2017 and, and 2011 as well. And, you know, it comes at a very interesting inflection point for the sport because of a lot of different changes happening all around college athletics, including to the playoff. They're going to take another shot at discussing expansion uh, this week. And I don't know where they're going to get we know there we're, we'll have a 12-team playoff model, probably not before 2026, which is, I think, a mistake uh, not to get it done sooner, but that's just kind of where we are. What happens from here? Like, how do you get to a point where the country is more competitive in the sport of college football than it's been? Where, you know, and obviously, like, there's some easy things to point to, like USC hiring Lincoln Riley. You know, does that spark a renaissance of USC's recruiting on the West, dominance on the West Coast? And and all of a sudden they're in the mix. Um, you know, Texas, does does Arch Manning go to Texas? Of course, Texas will be in the SEC pretty soon. Uh, although I, don't, I, I know people don't necessarily consider them Southeast. Um, yeah, like, you know, Michigan is seemingly on the right track, but now there's talk about Jim Harbaugh going to the NFL. To, which to me would sort of be waving the white flag on saying, hey, we did we did the best we could do in Michigan, mm-hmm. get into the playoff. I, I think I do think if you're if you're looking at the sport as a whole and saying when or how does this equation change where the Southeast just does not have a hammer lock on the championships, I think it's a fairly bleak picture. Really bleak. Really bleak. Um <clears throat> If you're a USC, you essentially need to completely lock down Southern California and basically lock down the West Coast and keep Alabama out from getting Bryce Young or keep Clemson away from getting, well, DJ hasn't panned out, but keep the best players at home. Do not let them go to the Southeast. 
And you got to do that for five or six years in a row at USC to build a roster that can compete with the Alabamas and the Georgias. Forget it if you're Oregon or Washington. I mean, just forget it. To me, this just forget it. If you just the, can't stack enough talent at those you places. You just can't. Yeah, you can't. You won't be able to. You're sharing the West Coast, you know, groups 1A, 1B, 1C with too many people. You don't have enough talent um, across the board. You may have individual players like a Thibodeau who could play anywhere, but you don't have the wall-to-wall talent. In the Big Ten footprint, if you're not Ohio State, forget it. Forget it. No chance. Um. The new Big Twelve, obviously, I mean, get lost. I mean, you're playing, you're playing for a participation trophy and a blue ribbon. I mean, get lost. No chance. Um, very a hopeless feeling situation if you're outside of that footprint. And really, if you're outside of maybe 15 programs um, within that footprint, who legitimately can say, "Hey, we have a shot at this thing if we do it right." So we got to get used to this. I mean, we should have been already used to it. Like I said, 15 out of 16, but. Yeah, I don't know what to say, Dan. It does feel a little bit hopeless and, you know, throw your hands up in the air a bit if you're outside of those teams. Like, why? what are you playing for if you think you can win national championships? I think you're deluding yourself. Well, look, I, I'm not one who thinks that the only value in sports is winning championships. I mean, there's a, there's a rings culture thing that permeates a lot of sports. The NFL, not – the NFL is, is a little bit more random and, and the salary cap makes things so much more fluid that I sort of put them to the side. But certainly in the NBA, you know, and it started pretty much with LeBron going to Miami. It was all about chasing rings, you know, and and we've seen this mentality go all the way through these other sports and including college football. And so the only thing that's that's valid or valuable anymore is if you win the whole thing. I don't think that's a healthy way to look at sports, which I think are entertainment. It's it's obviously very serious and important. But to me it's it's you I, I look at a season as 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 a as a storyline, as a journey. Uh and then the championship it's important, but I, I just don't think I, I don't I don't even know how to describe it. I don't even know what percentage to put on it. But here's what I do know is whatever sport we're talking about, like, and I've done this for long enough to say this very confidently. The day after whatever team wins a championship, national title, NBA title, Super Bowl, whatever, it's, you get about a 24 hour window that people talk about it. And then they've moved on to the next thing the day after that. You know what I mean? So so I just don't put as much stock in the championships as maybe some people. I like the whole picture here uh, of, of what a sport is and what it can offer throughout a season. And, and one of the cool things about college football has been that there are such differences in traditions and the way it looks and the way it feels from one area of the country to the other. I would not want it to become homogenized really, but through conference realignment, we're getting there. Uh, We're lacking the character. I think the playoff is causing some of that as well. But the downside of all of it is it's just becoming so hard to win a national title that I'm not sure, like you said, like there are some schools that what's their, what's their incentive to, to invest 
in this or really try as opposed to just play? Yeah, for a lot of places in the Power Five, what's your incentive to keep on spending? You understand your coffers are full if you're in the Big Ten, you're Purdue or you're, I mean, shoot, you're Penn State. Um, and you think you can win a national championship, that's what you play for every year. What's your incentive to keep on spending? I mean, I guess because you you, you spend because it makes you money. So that's a stupid question. It's, it's more rhetorical. It's about the idea of, yes, I love the sport for the same reason you do. I think it's for a lot of people who listen to us or, or follow the sport. I love it because it's unique, because there's 130 different pockets of, of how you cover it, of how you view the sport, of storylines and of history. But the truth is that how you and I and how USA Today and how ESPN specifically, because they own it, and how a lot of other places cover this sport is hinged to the playoff. So it's one thing to say, hey, I want us to think about the sport as being about things other than the national championship. But unfortunately, that's what we talk about. And that's yeah. how we cover it. And that's how we've covered it here at USA Today for probably four or five years now. It's different than how we used to. Um, and there's very few places I think you can go where you don't get oversaturated with playoff this, playoff that. So we're partially to blame, I guess. I don't want to take too much blame. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of millions of dollars that, that has driven the conversation in that direction. Um, but to bring it back to Harbaugh, if Jim Harbaugh leaves Michigan and his mindset as he leaves, even though no one will ever really know, <clears throat> hey, I got it as far as I could, and I'm Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, I think that's really bad for college football. That's really, really bad for college football. It'd be a really, really sad statement of affairs about uh, about this. A really sad statement about the state of affairs for the sport. Yeah, no, I agree, and it leads us into I think the controversy conversation that happened on New Year's Day with Kirk Herbstreet and Desmond Howard talking about, you know, these these young guys don't love football who are opting out. You know, players don't love football like they used to. And I, I don't – I mean, I, I didn't like the tone of those comments anyway just because I felt like uh, – way too general, way too personal, like – I never try to question people's motives, you know, for why they do what they do. Uh, but I think part of what we've seen is that there's been so much value placed in the playoff by everybody, ESPN primarily, that you can't help but look at some of these other games as part of the postseason as less important. And like, when I don't I don't like the term when people call them meaningless because meaning is in the eye of the beholder. What's meaningful to one person is not the same as, as to another. So clearly these games are meaningful to a lot of people for different reasons. But I, I do think what it, it, I can say confidently is that there's no other sport. Like, for instance, if the NBA said, all right, uh, or the NFL, the NFL is a better example. The NFL took the 12 teams that, that make the playoff and they put them in the playoff and then say, all right, the next 12 teams that didn't make it, we're going to go match them up against each other in Hawaii and, and go play the game. Like we would all laugh at that, right? People would just laugh, you know, because the season is the season. And then once the season's over, you've got the playoffs. That's how sports are supposed to work. That's how they work everywhere. In college football, you have this sort of strange thing where you've got all these bowl games, and now there's a ton of them. And I, I certainly don't mind them. I think a lot of them are, are really 
interesting and fun, but let's just admit it, it's a unique setup. And so now you've got the season and the season ends with the conference championship games. And then you've got the playoff and the playoff determines the national champion. And you've got all these other bowl games that are just basically kind of caught in the middle. What are they? Are they really a part of the season? Are they exhibitions? Are they important? Like, I just think over time, they have basically just become kind of money makers. Money makers, you know, for the people who run the bowls, for the cities, in, ter- in terms of tourism, for the coaches with their bonuses, for the conferences, for the television networks. And like you got a bunch of players playing and some may look at it as a great opportunity and some may look at it and say, eh, why? And I don't have a problem with either perspective, really. But I do have a problem when people try to tell guys who aren't going to play that they don't love football. That just uh, to me, that's asinine. Yeah, that seemed a little bit get off my lawn of those two guys. And they confused me, Herb Street and, and, and Desmond Howard, because like. Sometimes they are so uh, erudite and like so have such good nuanced takes on things as they should because of their platform. And sometimes they say dumb stuff. This was like out of left field. Did not make any sense why they went in this tangent. Yeah. Um, but anyway, bowl games are TV programming, right? Can we just admit <clears> that? Like I think 99% so. Ninety-nine percent are earned by are, are owned by ESPN. They're TV programming. It's like when um, you know, like when I watch Sunday Night Football. And it's like live, you know, Annie is live. Remember they ran this Annie thing. Like we're doing a live musical version of Annie Tuesday night at eight. You're like, what? Why? Because people watch, right? It's like people watch the first responder more than they watch PBA, you know, or billiards or whatever ESPN has on at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday. Um, So that's why they exist. They exist because they're part of the historic fabric of the sport and because we watch. Um, whether they're meaningful or not, Dan, yeah, like you said, I, I leave it up to the players. They've come this far. You don't want to play, then don't play. The guy behind you who's a sophomore wants this opportunity because it's a springboard towards getting the starting job. So there are more players where you came from. So if a Kenny Pickett doesn't want to play, I think he's earned that right. One thing that I think fans get wrong, and they've gotten wrong throughout this NIL conversation, Kenny Pickett's teammates want to throw him a parade on the way out the door. You know what I mean? They want to carry him on their shoulders as he makes that announcement and take him down to the bar and give him like 50 shots. Like, congrats, Kenny. Like, you did it. You know, you're our boy. Like, you carried us to this point. Take the day off. We got this. Players don't mind. I think coaches mind because there's a $50,000 bonus waiting at the end of the rainbow. But I don't care. More than that in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, $50 for the first responder bowl. But I just don't care. I don't know why we care, you know? And if it cheapens the bowl product, that's not the player's fault. It's the bowl's fault. It's the playoff's fault. Um, I know you have thoughts on this idea, but related to that is, you know, it's what it looks like now. What does it look like when we go to 12? You know, what happens to these bowl games when we get to 12? And more importantly, what happens to the bowl schedule? We touched on it last week, but I think there's a lot of questions there about how this whole thing plays out when we do get to 12 and what that impact will be on the calendar. Well, that's certainly, I think, going to be fascinating. And and look, I mean, at this point, it seems like we're probably five years away from the 12-team playoff, so don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But, yeah, this whole idea of whether or not guys want to play in these bowl games or teams want to play or what, what they mean, 
it's certainly going to be further stigmatized when you go to 12. Uh, obviously, there will be much more urgency and importance in a game like the Peach Bowl. You're not going to have a Kenny Pickett or a Kenneth Walker opting out of a playoff game, almost certainly. I'd be very surprised if, if they did. Um, but sort of the way people view these other ones as quote-unquote meaningless, hate the word, but let's just use it for the sake of the argument, mm-hmm. they're going to seem way more meaningless when all we're talking about is the 12-team playoff. And so I do think like the industry of college football, the bowl industry, there's, there's, there's a reckoning that they're going to have to have here about what to do with some of these games and how to try to make them more relevant if that's what they want the outcome to be. Now, I do think there's a pretty easy answer to that. Pay them, pay the players. But short of that, boy, they better they better come up with some solutions. Yeah. Um, uh, Chris Vanini of The Athletic is someone who I read a lot. I think Chris is fantastic. Um, he covers the sport the way that we spoke about before, where he's not just talking about the playoff and these big games. However, he wrote something, and he's written in a few times this year about how we need to expand to improve the semifinals. I think he's a little bit off the mark. Um, he does have a point, though, about the 12-team playoff helping the regular season. I think it'll help us pay more attention earlier in the year. It'll beef things up. More games will matter. So I think it'll do a number for the regular season, but it will destroy even further the postseason, and it won't help the semifinals at all. It will still have blowouts to the semifinals. Um, we might just have some better quarterfinal games, but it does not help our Final Four, which I think will play out the same way it always has. And I'm seeing a lot of people share his thoughts. Um, we need to go to 12 to save the postseason, to make the postseason better. I think the postseason will be worse. The postseason will be a lot worse with the 12-team playoff, though I do think the regular season, the second <clears> half, <throat> will be improved. So I think the 12-team playoff that's been proposed – You'll start off with first-round games, 5-12, 6-11, 7-10, 8-9. Those will be your matchups. I think generally speaking, of those uh, four games, those four first-round games, you'll probably get two pretty good ones. You might get three. Might get three. Um, But then you get to the second round – you may get a couple of good quarterfinals too, maybe. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, make it a couple too. The one versus eight game is not going to be a great game, is it? I mean, it's going to be worse than what we get now in the semis. Mm-hmm. So my, I guess my point is the whole idea of <clears throat> fixing the blowout problem, I think it's. I think that requires a much deeper thought process than just expand the playoff. I don't think that really does it. Now, the argument that's been made by some, and I think there's some merit to it, is that by expanding the playoff, giving more teams that platform, that it will help them grow their program, make their program more attractive to recruits, to give the, because they're in that spotlight. It'll make it seem like you know anything's possible. But, man, that process takes a long time. Like That's not something that, that changes or – Overnight, like that, that's something that happens over a decade. Yeah, I mean, Pitt getting in as the number, whatever, 11 seed 
that's not going to automatically mean that Pitt all of a sudden is going to be the 11th scene for the future. Um, that's an interesting point, though. I hadn't really thought about that, about the impact of getting in. What, like, you know, it, it broadens the reach of teams, the ability of teams to get in, so that it becomes more appealing and attractive <clears throat> uh, for teams to get in. Um, well, I mean, I think one, like, one, like, real world example of this is look at Notre Dame's recruiting the two to- after the two times they've been in the playoff. Like, it's, it, they, they've, you know, they've jumped up a, a level, a half level mm-hmm. since the first time they got into the playoff, right? Even though they got beat, even though it didn't go very well for them when they played Clemson and then when they played Alabama. You know, maybe that enabled them to get in with a couple more guys per class that than they would have otherwise. But guess what? They're still a world away from Georgia and Alabama right now. Yeah, does a 12-team playoff fix who plays for the national championship? You know what I mean? If you put Georgia and Alabama into this year's 12-team field, you're still getting Georgia and Alabama for the national championship. So what's the complaint when you see the SEC or a team from the Southeast continue to stack national championships in a 12-team field? What's next? 2014 field, are we just going to do a kicking competition? We do a punt-off so that so the Big Ten can win something? I mean, I don't understand yeah. like, like what the final – you know, there's like the um, – and, and this metaphor has been shared, but like there's this research that, that many people have done about – you know, to answer the question of, well, if we just added four lanes to I-95, wouldn't that finish or wouldn't that cure the problem? When in reality, it actually increases traffic. Adding lanes on your highway increases traffic because it adds more cars and the cars make up more space than the space that you've allotted to add more cars, if that makes any sense. So in the end, you're getting traffic. Whether you have 12 teams or 24 teams, in the end, you're getting the SCC. So I don't know what to say about, like, giving a Pittsburgh or whomever a better chance of winning the national championship. I don't really think it does. It just allows them to have a better, uh, a closer look at what it means to win one or what it takes to win one. That's still good. That's no, no problem with that, but you're not going to win a national championship. Yeah. I still think it's the same, very small group of, of teams that are capable of it uh, now that will be capable of it in five to seven years. And, you know, maybe maybe you have one or two new entries like a USC or, you know, somebody can do what Clemson did, but it's it's hard. So I, I'm not I'm not sure there's a lot of solutions. And maybe this is just one of those deals like the problems. You just kind of pick them off one at a time and hope that over the course of a generation that things start to equalize a little bit. But I think college football to me when you want to compare it to any sport, to me, the only sport it compares to is European soccer, mm-hmm. you know, where the the best, richest, most popular teams buy all the talent. They buy the players. They There's no real restrictions on their ability to accumulate talent to just go out and pay a massive transfer fee to, you know, to um, – you know, some South American club or to some MLS club or to a smaller European club to go buy that player. Like, that's what college football is. That, way more than it's like the NFL or where there's a draft and a salary cap. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in Europe, like, I don't think there's people who 
necessarily complain how unfair it is. It's just kind of, this is the system. A ton of people watch. They like it. And yeah. I guess, like, that's that's what college football is. The, the difference is that our sensibilities as American sports fans are just so oriented around the idea that everybody's got a chance. Because in so many other sports, they do. Yeah, well, then it's relegate. That's, relegate, baby. Yeah, let's relegate. Let's have four FBS divisions, and let's have them all play for something. So I think the reason why you have, like, a packed crowd and somewhere in the Cotswolds on a Saturday in, in February is because they're playing for the level four championship. I don't know the terminology, Dan. I don't, I'm not one of those guys who watches Premier League on Saturday mornings before college football is a level four thing. I don't know, but you know what I mean. Like, <clears throat> fourth division championship. Give Nebraska something to play for. Like, let them play Utah State for the Division Four Cup. You know what I mean? Like, give Purdue the Division Five uh, championship trophy. It's a it's a bucket. Have but we have we just solved all? This? What's that? I think have we just solved the college football problem? Here's what you do: have you, you take for something, right? You know what I mean? Go go t- go four divisions of thirty teams each, right? And then, like the bottom, I don't know, ten every year go down a level, and the top ten go up a level. Let me see. So we got thirty teams, <clears throat> right? So have thirty. Maybe your, maybe bottom five go down, top five move up every single year. So you've got some turnover. Like, what's the Premier League? How many teams in the Premier League? Any idea? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with what goes on over there. I just know it's sort of the, the bones of it. Yeah, but I think that's the way to cure it. We need to play for something. Like you said, as Americans, um, it's uh, bigger and better, right? We have to win something. Um, no one remembers the dude who held the door for you know the old lady or helped bring the groceries in from the car. Like That's not who champions are. Champions are the guys who stand and invent the confetti at the end of the day. So give some confetti to folks to play for. I mean, I don't know. But that's it. That's the way to solve it. Um, is to play for multiple championships, and you wouldn't have to call. You wouldn't be able to call it division like level four. That's too. Um, that's too cruel. You have to have different names for them. But let's do it. Let's do it. Give these people a shot. Give them a shot. I think. I think we've just solved the whole thing. We've just fixed the sport in free of charge. One hundred and twenty seconds. It costs nothing to do that. Almost costs zero to do that. Free of charge. Schools are paying. They're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to these consultants to figure out what to do here. Yeah, and we just we just we've just we just did it. Great, I'm glad. Just in time too, because the national championship is what day is it? It's Wednesday. It's Wednesday. Wednesday midday. All right, so let's let let's finish it off with uh, with our picks. Who who you got? What what do you think is going to happen? I think Georgia wins this game. I think it's a lot closer. I think it's a different feeling game. I do think Alabama, as always, has the potential just to drop a bomb on and win this game. But I'm going to go Georgia 28, Alabama 24, a well-played game uh, befitting the two best teams in the country. I, I just keep going back and forth. I mean, by the time kickoff happens, I may change my mind six more times. But um, I am going to go with Georgia 22 – Mm. to 13. Wow. Did not see that score coming, Dan. 
22-13 is not a, not an easy score. Let me just try to do this math here. You're getting <clears throat> let's just get the 14. You got 14. You really well, you got to have there, a safety in there. Am I right? There's going to be a safety. There's going to be a safety. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you're predicting 22-13 and a safety. Okay. I'm excited for this. I'm looking forward to this for sure. Either way, we're both picking Georgia, but we're both doing. And so we I just think. saw Alabama kick their butt a month ago. And yeah, it's it, it's crazy. Very lukewarm, very tepid. But we're we're yeah okay. Georgia over Alabama with a safety for Dan twenty eight twenty four for me, but lukewarm. Let's do this, Dan. Five days. By the way, our, our producer, Emily, has chimed in here. Um, obviously knows way more about uh, the English Premier League than oh, we okay, do. Good. Nine tiers in the English soccer pyramid. Top teams get promoted with the hope of climbing to the top league, the Premier League, which has okay. 20 teams. Bottom teams go down the pyramid. There are roughly 5,300 clubs in the English football system. Wow. Okay. So if you can do it with 5,300 teams, you can do it with 130. Even if we trim the fat to get down to 120, send New Mexico State out. Goodbye. Send New Mexico State gone. Uh, I would like us to kick Illinois out. Um, wait, wait, wait a second. Let, let New, New Mexico State. By the way, do you know New Mexico State makes their own whiskey? Did you know that? The university? The oh, athletic department. The athletic department. What is it called? Uh, do you have any idea? Um, I have a bottle of it in my Dude, in my really? uh, liquor cabinet. Where yeah. did you get that bottle? Did they ship that? Can you ship liquor in the mail? I feel like that's what smoking well, is about, right? I'm I, I am not going to get into the details of how I obtained a bottle of uh, of this. Look here, I, I have it like literally at my fingertips. Okay, let's um, see but well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go get it. So let me see. It. Our 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 audience won't be able to see it, but you will. I mean, it's okay. fascinating. Everyone here who listens knows that Dan is a amateur. I guess I don't even call you a mixologist. And of course, my liquor cabinet is literally two steps away from where I record this podcast. Yeah, well, got to keep that. So this is called Pistol Pete's Six Shooter Rye Whiskey. Oh, okay, cool bottle. I like it. Looks like a bottle of Rebel um, Yell. If people at home know the Rebel Yell brand from their college days, which was cheap rotka that you mix Dr Pepper with, uh, looks pretty good though. And also looks like you, you look at the seal. Okay. New Mexico College. Yep, it's got the seal. The American tradition of whiskey making is closely tied to the land and early agriculture. So is New Mexico State University, which was founded as the state's land grant college in a two bedroom adobe building in 1888. Soon became New Mexico College of Agriculture and Mechanic Arts. This rich flavored rye whiskey is as good straight as it is in a finely crafted cocktail. Enjoy around Pistol Pete's campfire. Or as you sing the fight song after an Aggie win, mm. um, yeah, this was the uh, this is the brainchild of uh, their their athletic director Mario Mokia to give them uh, a little unique branding. And uh, I will say, if you're able to get your hands on a bottle, it's really good whiskey. Yeah. And I as you said, I have I have hats on. I do the campfire. Don't wait for a New Mexico State win to savor your whiskey. Well, but but if, but if you're distilling whiskey. You're not going to get relegated if I'm if I'm in charge. Yeah, so they're more likely to get promoted. Yeah, they've got to stay in. They'll be in the f- bottom tier, obviously, but they can stay in. Um, yeah, okay, I'm impressed. I, I don't really have any words. I did not expect New Mexico State to start making their own whiskey. I know Penn State makes their own ice cream. Um, advantage, 
New Mexico Utah State makes their own ice cream. Texas A&M, I'm sure, has some sort of beef beef production assembly. Well, Jimbo Fisher's got two ranches, so he's obviously got cattle that he could yeah. process. Please, please uh, if you have it, send a picture of Jimbo on a horse. I would like to see that. Jimbo, if you're listening, ship us some steaks. Ship us some steaks. The kid from West Virginia riding a horse out in the in the wild, wild lands of Texas. I can't wait to see that. Um yeah, ship us some steaks. Uh, if you're uh, Blake Anderson, send us some ice cream. James Franklin, if you're listening, also some ice cream. And New Mexico State, which made a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic hire in Jerry Kill. I said fantastic yeah. three times. Ship us some of that alcohol. However you do it, you just got to ship it. Put it in the back of your car and drive if you have to. I, I think you're allowed to transport alcohol across state lines if you're not going to for purchase for purpose of sale. If you're just delivering, I think it's okay. All right. Well, I think that plea completes our work for today. No more uh, topics as the college football season winds down. We'll, we'll be back to kind of wrap it all up next week. And until then, please listen and subscribe on whatever podcast app you use to listen to the college football fix. Subscribe to USA Today Sports. It's the only way that you will be able to read all of the content that Paul and I produce on college football, USA Today Sports Plus, also an incredible product that I want everybody to subscribe to. So until then, hope uh, the new year is starting off the right way. Enjoy the championship game Monday night. Even for you SEC haters, I know you're going to be watching and you're going to have a good time. You're going to like it. It's going to be a good game. Till then. Dan Wolk and Paul Meyerberg, College Football Fix Podcast. See you next time. The College Football Fix Podcast. With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.